Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java Junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in breaking into product management to supercharge technology to improve the lives of others, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is the sole product manager for one of LinkedIn's enterprise product lines. But before I introduce you to Alex Valetis, who graduated in December 2016 with a sub 3.0 GPA, let me repeat, a sub 3.0 GPA and a double major in computer science and economics, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out bright and early on Mondays with unique insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals who are actually working them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign up box is right there. Now, my aspiring product managing pour over lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Alex Valetis, the product lead of Elevate, one of LinkedIn's enterprise product lines with 12 dedicated engineers. Prior to joining LinkedIn in November 2018, Alex spent about a year and a half at Intuit. That was actually his first job after graduating in December 2016. And he started off working as a product manager, leading a team and building a notification platform that powered smart notifications all across Intuit, touching over 50 million consumers and 2.2 million small businesses. While at Intuit, Alex also worked as a product manager of the iOS revamp of Mint that allows users to track bank, credit card investment and loan balances and transactions through a single user interface. And finally, Alex is also the author of a brand new book called Modern College, Choose Your Path, Get a Degree, land your dream job. We are going to be discussing Alex's new book and what he does in his PM role at LinkedIn in our main time for coffee interview. So please check out show notes to see if that episode has already dropped. Alex, welcome to time for coffee. Are you still caffeinated and ready to go? Yep. Still very much caffeinated. Nice. What kind of beverage are you enjoying? So I'm back home with my parents for a short while in Wisconsin. And, you know, my mom got a nice pot of homebrewed coffee this morning. So I had my glass of coffee and uh, I'm ready to go. Excellent. Now you said glass. Do you mean mug? Yeah, sorry. Mug is probably a better term for that. <laughs> I was just, I'm just giving you a hard time because I yeah. know a lot of people are drinking cold brew. So. Totally. Definitely. I actually have moved on now to my spindrift because it's mid-afternoon here 
as you know, on the East Coast. And yeah. I can't take caffeine too late in the day for sure. But I wanted to let you know, I read your book last night, cover to cover. Wow. And before we go any further, I just want to say huge congratulations to you. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. I'm, I'm impressed that you read it in one sitting. And, uh, as a author, I think that's like probably the highest compliment I can get. So thank you so much. Well, I took an amazing speed reading class that Jim Quick, who if people haven't heard of him, they should definitely check him out. I'm hoping to be interviewing him in the not too distant future. His last name is KWIK. And he has pretty much landed on the formula that worked for me and works for thousands of other people to speed read. But I want to let you know that as a boomer, I am sure I was not the intended audience of your book. And at the same time, you totally inspired me, Alex, among the things I've been most impressed with, and that I hope that our viewers and our listeners are going to take away with them is just how strategic you've been. And I'm talking about going back to when you were an undergrad, beginning early in your college years. And we're going to be digging into modern college a little bit later in this interview. But for now, I want to kick things off by getting a better understanding of what you are doing now at LinkedIn as the sole product manager for one of LinkedIn enterprise products. And I thought before we dig into that, because this is a bugaboo of yours, <laughs> you've written a whole post about this on um, Medium, about what mm -hmm. a product manager is. And there may be people who are confused out there about the difference between a, a product manager and a software developer or an engineer. So what is a product manager and what makes it such an interesting job? Yeah, I'm really glad that you actually asked that question up front because being a product manager, it's, it's a somewhat ambiguous role. It's something that's still new to some tech companies. So basically, the way I try to describe it is that you're the connective tissue between the different job functions on a team. So you know you have designers that are often putting together mocks and experiences. You have engineers that will then go and implement it. You have marketing stakeholders who will actually work on a go-to-market and a comps plan to actually get this out there. And as a product manager, I really sit across all of it. And my job is to essentially take in these inputs from all these really smart people I work with, trying to boil those down into key product decisions and decide what we're going to build for our users in the future. And you know, one of the best analogies I can think of on it is that you're kind of like a conductor operating between the different functions. You don't have the opportunity to actually play an instrument. However, if you screw up the conducting at any point, it'll actually throw off the whole band or orchestra. So that's one analogy. The other one that I think is a more slightly more hands-on one is like, you know, you're kind of the quarterback on a team. So again, a quarterback without any other sort of players on the field, nothing happens. The ball doesn't go anywhere. But what a quarterback does have, it's the potential to unlock the talent of those around him. And essentially, that's what a good product manager should be trying to do is clearing obstacles for the really smart people on their team and letting them go and do what they do best. Nice. And you are the sole PM for 
Elevate. Your title is product lead. First of all, what is Elevate? And does that mean that sometimes there's more than one product manager that's working on a particular product? Yeah, that's a really great question. So I came to LinkedIn about two years ago, and it was a really unique role. And what really intrigued me about it was, as you mentioned, it was an opportunity to be the one product manager on this entire enterprise application. And traditionally speaking, you know, especially for larger products at LinkedIn, we can see anywhere from 10 to 15 product managers on just one space. So I was extremely intrigued by this space. It was an app that you know had some of the largest companies in the world using it as customers. And essentially what Elevate is, is employee advocacy application. So we essentially give tools through our software to companies to help them push safe and approved content to their employees and their employees can share it to all their networks in one click. And this is really important for highly regulated industries. Think of people that work in the healthcare industry with strong HIPAA compliance rules, people with FINRA rules in the finance industry. This really gives them an opportunity to participate in social media in a way they wouldn't have before. What's also really exciting is that for the past two years, I've been operating in this enterprise world. And we recently made the decision that we're actually going to fold the functionality of Elevate into our basically LinkedIn pages ecosystem and give it away for free. So what I think is so exciting about this is that we see over a million companies actively engaging with LinkedIn on a monthly basis. This is from you know the large companies like Microsoft in the world to the little mom and pop small business around the corner. And essentially what we're going to do is we're going to now give this functionality to them. And as part of that, I'm leading the employee experience on LinkedIn, which is basically how do we help people interact with their coworkers and their company on LinkedIn. Traditionally speaking, people think of LinkedIn as that's where I go for my next play. I want to go find a new job. So now I'm going to get on it. Whereas we fundamentally believe that it also should be a place that you can go to interact with your current company and your current coworkers. So been working on this for literally over a year. We're finally starting to get you know the big pieces out there. And I couldn't be more excited for how this is going to improve the ecosystem and the app moving forward. Sounds really interesting. What are all of your job responsibilities, Alex? And I'm actually curious how they relate to what they look like on the piece of paper when you applied for the job. Do they really match or do you feel that they actually that the job has evolved or maybe ended up being a little different in practice? Yeah, I think what's really interesting about the role of a product manager, it can be very fluid depending on what part of the product life cycle you are in. So for instance, if if you come into a project or a team and you haven't built anything yet, you're in more of what I call an exploratory phase. So you'll spend a lot of time talking to customers and potential users and a lot of time going through these like prototypes. And you're really trying to figure out what's that first thing we can get out there and start to learn from. Now, on the other hand, if you do already have a product out there and you're trying to make optimizations, say you want to bring in some artificial intelligence to improve the recommendation algorithm, say you want to add an additional feature on top of this pretty meaty product already, then what you would be more in is what I call the executional phase. So making sure that you are 
answering the right questions and making the right decisions to help you know the engineering team actually build and implement this. When you're at a really large company like LinkedIn, where there are like 700 million users, things break when it gets that big. So you have to make sure that you're not only executing well, but that operations are solid. And then I think the last part is what we call sort of this like go to market or like ongoing sort of buzz around it. So now that you've brought something from concept to actually out there and people are using it, how do you get more people to use it? How do you grow it? And telling that story of why you should spend your time. People are so busy. Why should they spend their time on this app or this feature? How will it help improve their lives? That's another part of the role. So it's a very amorphous role. If you ask 10 product managers what they do, you might get 10 different responses. But I think that's part of what makes it so awesome. You mentioned earlier that you kind of see the PM role as being somewhat like a conductor. You're not playing an instrument, but you're helping harmonize all the different instruments in the orchestra, all the different roles. It also sounds a little bit to me like the role of a CEO and a microcosm. You're not worrying about P&L. You're not worrying about whether people are going to get their paychecks. But I kind of have, I mean, the idea that you sit at the center of the marketing and comms team and the product development team and the engineering team, and I'm guessing also the sales team, the folks that are going to be or partnerships team, biz dev. Yeah, it's interesting because when I first started my career, I actually heard on a lot of like online articles and like videos, you know, as a product manager, you are the CEO of the product. And while I think as an early professional, it feels cool to have that sort of relationship or even people suggesting that. I think the reality I've learned is there is a pretty stark contrast. And I think the main difference is this actual authority and autonomy. So as a CEO, you know, you have nearly complete authority and autonomy to make decisions. And so much of my role is through influence. At the end of the day, like I can't go and tell people we have to do this. If you don't do this, you're in trouble. It's more I need to tell a compelling story and narrative on why we should do this. And, you know, on paper, yes, technically, product makes a lot of these decisions, but it'll only be as successful as you are able to bring people along on that journey and they agree with you. So I think that's a big difference between like a CEO and a product manager is like you have no direct reports. You don't have any of this authority. That being said, I think a lot of really successful CEOs have had product in their past. And I think the reason why they started in product was if you can learn to lead through influence rather than authority, when you have the authority, I think you appreciate it a lot more. You don't make shortcuts and basically get lazy, right? And cut people out of the process, but you bring them along too. And that's something that I've seen in the best leaders in the tech and business world in general. Yeah, no doubt. You have, is it 12 dedicated engineers in your team, I guess, working on this enterprise. And your CV also says that you've got a 40 plus GTM headcount. What does that mean? I mean, that's part of the enterprise and that that is shifting. Um, I'm glad you called it out. So, you know, when you work on an enterprise product, you not only have to build this thing, but you actually need people to go out and sell it. And that's a pretty, you know, big difference in what we call the world of enterprise and the world of consumer. So, 
yes, we have 12 basically engineers as well as a designer and other roles like business operations who are helping, you know, sort of build and put the product together. And in the enterprise world, you would have basically what we call go-to-market partners. These are people who help go out and sell what's being built, uh, people who are actually doing, you know, we call it customer success. So essentially making sure that our top clientele and customers are having their feedback heard, that they have input to the roadmap and all of that. Um, what's so interesting about my current role is that we're actually transitioning from that enterprise world to the consumer world. And so at that point, a lot of our you know, go-to-market partners and stuff are going to other LinkedIn products and stuff to help continue those on the enterprise space. But again, I think that's been you know one of the more challenging but also intriguing parts of a transition like this is that you fundamentally change the mechanisms you go to market with. Before with Elevate, when it was standalone or how it is now, you need people out selling it. In the future, when we complete this transition, you'll essentially be able to onboard with just software on its own. So it'll be a really intriguing uh, sort of transition and excited to bring it to so many more companies because you know when you look at like a small business of like, 20 people, it's it's hard to bring a dedicated salesperson out to them to sell the product. But when you give it to them for free, and maybe you push a notification that say, Hey, this feature is waiting for you, you know, the potential to scale is, is just massive at that point. That sounds great. So can you take us into a typical day, Alex? I know you are currently in Wisconsin, hanging out with yeah. your parents during the coronavirus. We're doing this interview in the middle of September, but you yeah. will be heading back out west. Nevertheless, you'll probably still be working remotely. What yeah. is a typical day like during the coronavirus? Yeah. So I think for me, so much of my role is dependent on intaking information from different people and then disseminating it to the right ones. So a huge chunk of my calendar is in fact around meetings, whether it's in one-on-one settings to basically hear feedback from our support team or our marketing team. What are people saying about the products? What are the gaps? And then I can take that information. And then when I meet with our engineering team or designers, we talk about, okay, what would a solution to this look like? How are the things we're building and tracking now? Are we building the right things? Are we on schedule? So a huge chunk of the day is what I would really call sort of stakeholder communication and like sort of management of making sure that everyone is unblocked and has the information they need to do their job well. Then what I do is then put like a chunk of my calendar, I'll actually hard block off calendar time for me to work on things that I call more like deep work. So whether it's writing a product specification, where I basically put together a couple page document of this is the problem we want to solve. Here's what the solution look like it's a really low fidelity mock-up of how we do it. And then I would take that to a designer later or spending time to sit down and actually go into our dashboard and say, okay, how many people visited this page with this feature today. All right, we had 100,000 members. How can we get it to 150,000 next week? So that deep work time, I think is really important as a product manager because oftentimes we are the only people that have the bandwidth to go do that and actually go look at the dashboards or to go write up these specifications. And then I said the last part, and this is less related to my job, Uh, directly, but it's making sure there's enough time in my day to explore our LinkedIn ecosystem. So I always read about we're such a big company, and it's impossible to actually know and talk to everyone all the time. But we do a good job of sending out emails when a new feature is out. What I'll do is I'll go read the emails describing the feature. I'll go play with it myself. And what you begin to do is over time, you learn about this sort of massive software ecosystem you have. 
And at some point in the future, you might say, hey, what if we pair this feature with this new feature? Wouldn't that be really awesome for the customer? So at a company like LinkedIn, it's really important that you bake in that time as well to do what I call like kind of exploration of the products because that's where some of the best new ideas come from. Nice. And I'm curious, is your reference to deep work a shout out to Dr. Cal Newport? Uh, it is actually, yeah. Yes, I interviewed him on Time oh, for awesome. Coffee. Yeah, he was I'll one of my early that. interviews and love the whole deep work and all of all of his writings. So hope our Absolutely. our viewers and our listeners check him out because he's got a ton of amazing tips. So Alex, you graduated in December of 2016. Back in the fall of 2016, did you have any idea what you were going to do with your double major in computer science and economics? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting sort of time in my life because I think coming into college, I really had no clue what I wanted to do. I was proficient in a number of subjects. There wasn't any that were like, oh, I'm awful at this. Like, I wasn't like awful at math. I wasn't like awful at writing. And that's not to like put myself up. It was more so that it was less clear what I should do. And I sort of kind of blindly followed this path of engineering. I was actually involved with like nuclear engineering at first, working for a company that my dad worked at. And I remember I took my first internship and I was like, I cannot do this for my life. This is not something that personally interests me. It's it's objectively cool, but it's not a fit. And so going into my junior year, I actually made this late change in majors from engineering to computer science and economics. And that was really done because of these side projects I was doing. Every time we spun something up, it was like software could help solve that. And I just wanted to get closer to it. So going into my sort of last semester, I had a number of internships under my belt. I had these what I'd call like kind of hot majors in the tech space and as well as the economics degree. However, I actually didn't have a full-time offer going into the final semester. And that caused a lot of anxiety for me because I didn't have the best GPA because I invested a lot of time into these side projects and internships and all that. And I also was like, I want to go into this field of product management. It's extremely competitive to get into. And so what I really did is I just got extremely focused. I said, this is what I want to do. I'm going to do everything in my power to land a role there. I honed in on two or three companies that I felt I had a chance of getting into that role. And Intuit happened to be one of the companies that recruits heavily from Wisconsin because... Obviously, you know, Silicon Valley companies aren't always coming out to the Midwest, which I think is a shame because there's a lot of great talent out there. But fortunately for me, uh, Scott Cook, the founder of Intuit, his wife was alumni. They invested heavily in recruiting and I was able to make the right connection and and land a role. And it's been truly life changing so far. And I can't imagine not starting in this space, given how much I care about it. So you've alluded to this now, the fact that you didn't have a great GPA and you did manage to get your foot in the door at Intuit. You actually had, I think, four offers by the time you graduated. Is that right? Yeah, I was able to lock down four different ones, which I think it it was done in a very incremental way. But yeah, there were four on the table at the time, which didn't make the decision any easier, but it's a good problem to have. So I want to tee up a great story in your book, Modern College, in which you talk about the winter. It's probably almost always the winter at Wisconsin because it's so cold. It's the middle of a blizzard and you were leading 
think you were the president of a club and you had had an event. You had a program that was due at midnight in one of your classes. And there was a career fair that was taking place like a mile away on campus. And you're like, do I go? Do I not go? Ah, and you ended up deciding to go. And while you're running through the snow, I, I my heart breaks where you fell down, you hurt yourself. And so you kept powering through and you made it to the career fair. And why don't you pick up the story there and tell us what happened? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, to your point, I, I felt kind of dumb as I'm going into this. We we have this center. Uh, it's called the Cole Center. It's where a lot of sports teams play and they set up the career fair. And as I'm walking in there, I'm kind of soaking wet because I fell in the snow. I'm actually getting there for the last 10 minutes of the career fair. So most of the booths, they were already taking down. So like people have been there for hours. I've been to your point uh, or what you referenced earlier, like at this meeting for this org that I was deeply involved in. So I'm in there and I was like, okay, I just want to talk to one company. I want to talk to Dell. I know they're in the tech space. If I can just get there and maybe get an intro, maybe something will happen. I don't know. So I'm walking up there. I I find the map and I'm like, okay, Dell's like, you know, on the other side. So I, I sprint over there and I kind of take like a minute to compose myself. And I see kind of guy wrapping up with one person. And as the other person walks away, I walk up and I, I shake his hand and I'm sure I'm like sweaty and I was like mumbling my words because I'm, I'm so anxious. And initially it kind of goes nowhere. I'm like, oh, you know, like I'm a big fan of Dell. And you can tell the guy is just completely exhausted. He's like, I don't want to be here anymore. I want to go back to my hotel and get ready to fly back to Texas. And I actually like go to turn away and I'm like, well, crap, I'm going to fail my program because I went to this career fair. Um, I didn't get any offers. And I kind of just had this like moment of inspiration where I was like, I knew a friend on campus. His name was Brian. He had mentioned he'd worked at Dell. And I was like, I know personal connections mean a lot in the professional space. Like, I'm going to name drop him and just see what happens. So I actually turned back and I'm like, hey, random question. You by chance know Brian. And this guy had actually ended up working with him at the same time at Dell. And they were really good friends. And that immediately struck up a conversation. He was like, oh, you know, Brian, okay, let's get you on the interview docket. So I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I was like, this is incredible. So I, I gave him my email. The next day, I got an email from a VP for a slot later in the week. And the rest is history. I got an internship at Dell, which helped launch my career. And it's just amazing to look back on. It would have been very easy for me to have just said, I don't want to go to this career fair. I need to focus on this school assignment. It's cold out. I don't want to go there. There's only five minutes. And it's often during these moments you least expect it that the biggest changes come in your life. So I'm really wow. glad I went back there. <laughs> I bet. And as you point out in your book, Modern College, the fact is you were involved not only in these other enterprises on campus, these different startups, but you were also a member of a fraternity. And this guy, Brian, was a frat brother of yours. And for our viewers yep. and our listeners, you point out in your book, they need to be looking around at their classmates that they're meeting through all these different activities as the beginning of their professional network. Absolutely. And, it, and it's funny because I actually wasn't super involved in my fraternity. I, I think a lot of people these days, they go and do fraternities or sororities to meet people. And I didn't really have that issue because I went to college in the same state I'd grown up in. So I entered campus with 
probably over like 100, if not 200 people where I, I could walk up and have a conversation with them and I knew them. But I was intrigued because one thing I saw was that these fraternities would attract a lot of people from the coast who basically didn't know anyone. And they were like, we want like in a network. And I'm glad I did it because I met all these different people. And although I wasn't as involved in the process, and there's certainly plenty of scrutiny on the fraternity system, probably for good reason, it did introduce me to people and it, it taught me the power of a network. And so it was just another organization to meet people that had different interests in me or the same interests and could actually give me sort of an intro to a space. So whether you're in a fraternity or in academic org, I, I did all of them. And it's just some of the best networking you can possibly do in college. And what I love about your story, Alex, is that it's not like that recruiter was like, oh, you know, Brian, well, I'm going to give Brian a call and he and I can talk about you. He went from mm -hmm. like zero to 60. I was like, yeah. you know, Brian. OK, well, forget about it. I don't. I'm not even going to ask you what your GPA is. I'm yeah. not going to ask you what courses you've taken. I'm just going to put you on the fast track to yeah. connect with the VP who offers you a job. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, it, it definitely speaks to, I think, you know, the importance of connections in society. And it's funny, uh, Blake, Blake Roth is his name. Shout out, Blake. He ended up being a good friend of mine down at Dell, too, when I interned there and someone I still would gladly pick up the phone for and help him in any way I could. But I think it speaks to this wider thing of the importance of networks. And one thing that I think has become apparent you know, especially in recent times is not everyone has access to these networks. Not everyone knows people in professional spaces. Not everyone is on these powerful platforms like LinkedIn. And one thing that I like that Jeff Wiener, our now former CEO of LinkedIn has really invested in is this idea of like the plus one pledge. And how do you take people with these connected networks and resources and reach out to people that are aren't in the network, right? Because this is the only way that you break, I think, some of these cycles in our society of basically people not being able to have opportunities. And if you're someone in that space, all they need is that one connection to enter. And so on the one hand, I always tell people, do as much work on your own to tap into these networks. But if you are someone in a position where you have a powerful network, you have opportunities, make sure to that you seek out people that don't have the opportunity and give them an intro. Because again, a lot of times it's who you know. And this isn't necessarily a bad thing until there's people not knowing anyone. And I think that's what we need to make sure we do is give everyone an equal chance at these networks. And then by all means, like once someone's in a network, judge them on their merit, judge them on their skill sets. But we need to make sure that we don't fundamentally block out people from these networks from having the opportunity. And I'm fortunate to work at a company like LinkedIn that I think puts a lot of emphasis on this. And it's not only a benefit to LinkedIn because it's how we grow, but I think it's how you build a stronger economy as well. Yeah. So preach. And secondly, that is one of the main reasons that I started Time for Coffee because I'm trying to level the playing field for all of those people who might not know you, might not know a Scott Roberts, who is a very senior executive at LinkedIn, who might not know all these other people because their parents don't have the connections. Maybe their alumni network isn't in the right spaces for them. So I could not agree with you more. I want to touch on something that you spend a good deal of time discussing in your book, and that is the power of internships, not just to give you experience, which of course they do, but 
It's also about, it's like that old fairy tale, the Goldilocks and the three bears. It's the opportunity to try different bowls of porridge to see which ones you like and don't like. And just because you have an internship that ends up being something that you did not enjoy, that's actually a success because perhaps you've realized that company is not a good fit for you or that role may not be a good fit for you. Absolutely. I think there are multiple benefits to doing internships, especially early on. To bring back another sports analogy, sorry if there's anyone listening that doesn't listen to sports. I drop a lot of sports analogies, but how I describe it to a lot of college students is you want to have as many at-bats as possible, right? Because if you're trying to hit a home run on your first attempt, it's it's highly unlikely that you're going to nail that position. Whereas if you can get a few singles, if you can get a couple of internships, maybe they're not even what you want to do. Those are things that you can signal then to other employers. So with a lot of my early internships, sure, it wasn't in something I wanted to do. But number one, I got another big name on my resume. And so when I hand that resume to a company like Dell, they can say, oh, like Berkshire Hathaway, I know that company, like if they hired you, clearly, you know, you have some skill set. Number two is that to your point, it's like the Goldilocks sort of idea of you try some things. And I think for me, even today, sometimes I feel like I love my role now, but are there roles out there I don't know about that I'd be really good at? And at the very least, like you explore. And if you don't like the role, you can say, look, I have no FOMO from doing this. I can say with certainty, I have a ton of respect for nuclear engineers out there, but it's not something I would have been good at. It wasn't a fit for me. And at least I can say with confidence that I don't have to have FOMO of like, uh, was that the right path or my destiny? So I think that's another big benefit is not only do you get the reputation that comes with working at a company and associating with them, but you also learn what you do and don't like. Yeah. I also want to make sure that we talk about what I think is one of the most valuable insights in this book, Alex. It's that even though your title talks about how to land your dream job, you want your readers to realize that even though right now you're in a great job, that doesn't mean that there are perfect jobs out there. And it's a point that another young guest of mine made a number of months ago, Caroline Muja, who's actually Mm -hmm. doing marketing at Oscar Health, which is an online tech health company. And Mm -hmm. she said the same thing, that perfect jobs don't exist. And I think that's a myth that we need to bust right here, right now. Yeah, it no matter who you talk to in the world, whether it's a celebrity, an actor, an athlete, whatever glorified position you name, there are parts of that job that I guarantee that person doesn't like. And you're right, it's a fallacy that there's this perfect job out there. If anything, it should be part of this longer sort of mindset of how you approach your career. And I actually heard another great piece of advice from one of the former VPs at Intuit that I when I was at into it formally, he's still VP. Uh, Varun said to me, he said, you should look at a career as a infinite horizon. And the problem is a lot of people, they look at their career as being like the set point in time. And they're like, if I don't get to this position by this point in time, like I'm doing something wrong or I need to leave. And he goes, the, the paradigm completely shifts when you look at your horizon as being infinite. And he says, imagine your career is infinite. What would you do? What would you do differently? And I think what that means is that you have to have a higher threshold for discomfort at times. You have to actively seek out these experiences that you don't like so that you can learn what you do like. 
And over time, you continually start to build the career and the life you want while recognizing it's never going to be perfect. So I'm very happy where I am now. But that doesn't mean I'm not constantly trying to acquire new skills, constantly exploring. You should never say no to an opportunity to at least learn about it. And I think that's something everyone should keep in mind. And the sooner everyone recognizes that, I think the better equipped people are going to be to see an opportunity when it does come and not look at it as a suboptimal path. Yeah, fantastic. Before I ask you the two questions I try to ask all of my guests, Alex, I want to just quickly touch on something where you and I are not on the same page. And I want you to kind of lay out your rationale because we are here in September of 2020 and you devote a pretty good section of your book to choosing majors. And for freshmen, sophomores, and juniors, as you mentioned, you changed your major in your junior year. It's a super stressful experience picking the right major. What is your best advice? Definitely. So I think, and maybe this is where we differ, and it's it's a debate I love having with people because I think it's it's a very valid one, is starting from the point that your major matters. And the reason I say that is if, if you start to reverse engineer different career paths and like outcomes, there are jobs out there that do have hard requirements for majors. So if like you want to be physical therapist or a doctor, if you want to go work as a nuclear engineer at a power plant, there are very specific majors you need to go there. Now, obviously, there's a whole swath of roles out there that don't need a specific major. But most people, when they go to college, they don't know what jobs they don't want yet. So by default, you have to assume that your major matters until proven otherwise, right? So if you go in with that approach, it forces you to sort of think through all the different paths and make sure you don't miss anything. Now, once you start to hone in on the specific role you want, then I think it becomes, you're right, less about the major and more about the connection, skills, and knowledge you acquire there. But I do caution people to like, approach college is simply just an intellectual enrichment experience. I think if you go back a few decades where colleges were receiving better funding and it wasn't such an exorbitant cost, sure, if it's only a couple grand a year, it's not a like super big risk to just go try a major and then course correct after. But when you have students out there that are spending $100,000, $200,000 and essentially like rolling the dice... I think that it's kind of a gamble not worth having. So I always encourage students, assume your major matters until proven otherwise. And then that way, you at least can say, hey, look, whatever path it is I want to take, I haven't cut myself off from taking it, right? Because the last thing you want to do is get into your junior year or senior year and be like, oh, I actually want this career path. And okay, I can't even go into it now unless I restart. Yeah, I think what you've laid out there makes a whole lot of sense. And I actually don't disagree with much of what you've said. My only concern is that there are young people who are trying to reverse engineer their career. And truth be told, your careers are going to be multiple. And if you are studying something as you initially did, that you didn't really feel lit you up. And I caution to use the word passion because we don't always feel passionate in college about what we're studying. We feel maybe 
interested in it, some people feel passionate. And so I would say if something doesn't capture you, isn't like an obvious in terms of this is kind of something I could see myself doing that I'd be interested in doing after Mm -hmm. you've done your homework, which I think is great, saying, are there certain foundational skills that I need to have, foundational courses, maybe even a major if I want to pursue that path. But otherwise, I say follow what you're interested in. Study what you're interested in because your interests are going to evolve over the course of your professional life. And chances are you may end up, as I am, in a field that is every single field I've had, I'm in my fourth career now, has been different from the one prior. And I studied poli-sci and Mm -hmm. had a concentration in Asian studies and Chinese. And I never went into government and Mm -hmm. I never worked in a think tank. And I never went into academia. I mean, I'm kind of in academia now, but more as a a platform to educate people. So that's my only kind of gentle pushback. Two final questions, Alex. Could you share a time in your professional life, and let's include your internships, when you struggled? Maybe you even failed. And I ask that question because I personally have had some of the most enriching learning experiences in my own failures. And I was fired twice in my 40s, for example, and I ended up realizing they were incredible gifts because they Mm -hmm. pushed me in different directions that I might not otherwise have had the courage to go in or the inclination to go in. And then most importantly, Alex, if there was a lesson that you learned through that experience. Yeah, that's that's a really great question and one I, I constantly try to reflect on. And there's a few that come to mind, but I actually want to talk about a rather recent one. And I think it's sort of my experience with publishing this book while working a job during COVID. So one thing that's interesting about my experience this year is aside from COVID, I actually suffered a pretty serious injury back in February when I was snowboarding. So I, as you can see from the, the scars there, wow. I, I Oh my gosh. Yeah, I was snowboarding up in Lake Tahoe. A skier ran into me and I lost my balance and I, I landed on my arm and it, it actually like snapped in half. So both of the bones snapped and the bone actually came out of the skin. And it was hard because I basically, I lost the use of my hand for a couple of weeks and it was unclear if I would get basically use of my hand back. Thank God it, I have dexterity and there still are some nerve issues with it. But for the most part, it came back. But that was really challenging. Because if you think about writing a book, or should I say typing a book out, it's kind of hard to do that when you don't have one in your hands. And so for me, it was kind of this low point where I was under all this stress, and I couldn't even type. So I was literally using like speech dictation tools on Google. So I would instead of me typing, it, I would like speak the words and Google always got it wrong. So with like one hand, I'd, I'd go back and go through. And I think it was a struggle because it just felt never ending. I was like, how long is it going to be with not having my hand? How long is it going to be with COVID? And what I realized at the end was in July, I finally published this thing. And what it taught me was that bad times don't last forever. They inevitably happen, but they never last forever. And so the best thing you can possibly do is when you're in a position like that, you just kind of got to stick to your principles and keep working hard to deliver. So it would have been really easy, I think, for me to give up on the book and like, this is a distraction from work. I'm already handicapped as it is right now. The last thing I need to do is go away from work. But I had this conviction in what I was working on. And I knew if I just did 
a little bit day by day. By the end, I would be happy with what I produced. And I'm really glad I, I didn't give up on it. And I'm really glad that I have use of my hands again. <laughs> oh my gosh, what a story. And it just makes me have even more respect for you and this huge accomplishment that you have achieved with Modern College. So thank you so much for sharing that, Alex. Yeah, definitely. Final question. If you could go back to college, back to the University of Wisconsin at Madison and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Yeah, it's hard because I think we tend to view our past experiences in different light depending on where we land. So given that I landed in a good position, I'd almost want to tell myself nothing. I'd I'd almost want to like hide in the bushes and be like, just go do your thing because you're going to end up in a good spot. But I think to have a little more fun and think about it, I think what I would really love to do actually is I would love to hand my former self the book Modern College. And I I would love to say read this book because it's going to teach you a couple of key life lessons that I feel like I didn't have. And being the older child in my family, I kind of had to learn this on my own. And I think there's a few things from it. I think one would be like half conviction in these projects you're doing. I think a lot of times I had doubt in college when I was doing them. And it it sort of hindered the experience a little bit. It's hard when you're like doing these... I was doing these great competitions with people and we were getting like flown out places. But there was this stress of uh, like, is my GPA like suffering too much? And I would say have conviction in these like it matters more like in your classes but if you get a few grades it's not going to ruin you i think the other thing i would also say to myself too is value people and don't burn any bridges and i don't think i did a whole lot of that in college for what it's worth but i think a lot of times we tend to underappreciate some of these people in our lives and we think oh because of how they are today i might not like hanging out with them or talking to them in the future but People change so much during this time. And that's been one of my favorite parts about COVID actually is that there's it's really easy to reach out to people. And I've done a bunch of Zoom calls from people from college or high school. And it's just interesting to see how much our paths have started to converge and how much we actually do have in common. So I would say definitely don't take any person you meet for granted because everyone is someone that can teach you something. And every person might be the person that opens up that next door that you open up a door for them. So that's the only other thing I would say. But for the most part, I'd be like, yeah, have fun. Don't get in any trouble and it'll all work out in the end. (laughs) Yeah. And Alex's book is called Modern College. If you want to hold it up again, choose your path, get a degree, land your dream job. Let's just put air quotes around dream job. It's going to be a job that you love, but it's not going to be perfect because the perfect jobs don't exist. You are an awesome guy. You have so much wisdom at such a young age. And I just hope that our listeners and our viewers will get modern college and level up wherever they are in their professional journey. Thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me, Alex, and with the Time for Coffee community. This was wonderful. Thank you so much, Andrea. And take care and best of luck to everyone out there. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. 
And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the Coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org, or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Thank you.